Good morning. It is good to see each of you here today. And I hope that all of you are having a good week and the beginning of a week today. So I thank you for choosing to be in worship today. And certainly we can say this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So I hope that uh, it's a good day for you. And I hope this lesson will be a benefit to you. And I chose a subject this morning that I hope will maybe bring a little warmth to your mind and heart. Because now that we've entered this season of coolness, some might even say coldness, uh, I wanted to say something that might be better suited to some in their minds for springtime. But I thought, well, it's cold outside, so maybe I can bring a little springtime to church today, or the thought of springtime today. And so today's lesson is entitled, The Three Great Gardens of Scripture. Thinking about a garden and what that means. Cicero once said, if you have a garden and a library, you have everything that you need. And that really resonates with me. Because uh, some of you may know that I'm a bookworm. I love my books. And I haven't really mastered that garden thing yet. But I love to be outdoors. And I love to be in nature. And I can see the idea that if you've got fresh vegetables, and if you've got the beauty of a garden, and then you've got books, then really you've got about everything that you need, right? And, and that just resonates with me as a person thinking about the needs that we have as individuals, and I think maybe you can relate to this. Maybe we have lost something, a connection with nature. Maybe in this modern age, we have a kind of a detachment from, from nature. Because sometimes I'll see people walking down the street, and it's amazing that they can walk and look at their phones at the same time. Haven't you seen that? And we're so involved technologically. We're so involved with computers. We're so involved with our TVs. We're so involved with the indoors. Maybe we lose a connection by being like that. Einstein once said it like this. Look deep into nature and you will understand everything better. If we understand nature, if we understand what's around us, we begin to see wonderful things and, and it entunes us with God. And maybe this detachment that we have from nature itself, we've lost a connection to God. And there's so many things that we find in nature and in a garden. The first thing that snaps into my mind, of course, is beauty. The beauty of a garden. And we take so many things of that garden and of that beauty for granted Remember the words of Jesus when He says, Consider the lilies of the field. Even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. That if we begin to pay attention to the beauty of natural order, it blows everything else away. The design and the intricacies that we find in nature, Jesus said, is beyond even what the great monarch Solomon, in all of his glory, in all of his splendid golden clothes, 
It could not compare with the glory that is in the natural order of the world, the beauty that's within the world. And of course, when we come to a garden, we see the beauty, but not only are we confronted with beauty, we also see life, the beauty of life, of cultivation. And the wonderful thing about a garden is is that it is a cooperative thing with God. That when you create a garden, you're not just working by yourself, are you? No, in fact, you are cooperating with the natural order and you're using your own mind and your own intentionality to create something with God Himself. And isn't that a beautiful idea? In a garden, you're working with God Himself. Also, I look at a garden and we also see and we learn the principles of growth. That everything that's around us is changing. That there are indeed seasons. And that there are things that are beyond our control. We see the principle of reaping and sowing. That if you do put a seed into the ground, and whatever that seed is, it's going to come up whatever that seed was. We also see the principle of consequences in that you reap what you sow consequentially. We also see the power of potentiality. That God gives us this small little seed. Something so insignificant. In fact, many of us would pass on it if we didn't know what it was. If we didn't know the power that was within that seed. And from that seed comes great fruit. From that seed comes great vegetables. And you have the power of potentiality in that something so insignificant becomes so much. There's also, I think, a lesson of patience, isn't there? Because last time I checked, when you plant that seed, it's not like microwave popcorn. I wish it was. That's probably why I'm not a farmer. Because I don't have the patience to be one. But it takes great patience to cultivate a garden and to wait, to wait for it to grow. And then you've got the beauty of that sustenance that there's food in your garden. And then, of course, what I would probably be the best at in my garden if I had one was the leisure part. In a garden, you can find Leisure, you can find rest from your work. But the scriptures have used this idea of a garden as a metaphor many times for spiritual application. And so in Song of Solomon, the the idea of a garden is reflected to to love. Song of Solomon in, in chapter 415 describes his bride as a fountain of gardens for all of our poets and romantics in the house today. So he described it as this metaphor of a garden as of love. And of course, if you know anything about relationships, there is an idea that you have to cultivate the relationship, don't you? You have to work in the garden in a relationship. You have to water the garden in a relationship. 
Also, the scriptures tell us that even our spiritual lives can be described as a garden. In Isaiah 58, 11, it says, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. You shall be like a watered garden. That when my life is so ordered with God, when I have that relationship with Him, that my life is like a a well-watered garden. And also, of course, the kingdom of God is described in the likeness of a garden. Jesus said that when we plant that mustard seed, the kingdom of God is likened to a mustard seed, an insignificant seed, but when it's planted, it becomes the greatest of the trees and the birds nest in that tree. That the kingdom of God comes to us in a humble means, but yet it is so powerful and organic. So today I want to take us on a journey through the greatest gardens of Scripture. And I hope that you will learn and find a deeper understanding of yourself and of myself. Of course, when we think about gardens in the Bible, the first one that's probably going to jump out, right, is the first garden. The first garden mentioned in Genesis, the Garden of Eden. That's probably all of us as our first thought is to, is to think about the Garden of Eden. And so one of the things that we can think about is in a modern scientific society, some scoff at the idea that there was an Adam and Eve. But everything in the Bible tells us that there was indeed Adam and Eve. When it talks about them, it talks about them as real people. Not as mythical people, not as imaginary people, not as parable people, but as real people. When it talks about them, it uses things like genealogies. It traces people back to Adam and Eve. In fact, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 3 is traced back to Adam and Eve. Paul refers to Adam and Eve. And of course, Jesus himself refers back to Adam and Eve. It says in the Scriptures, the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put man whom He had formed. He planted a garden. He planted this beautiful place for man to dwell, for man to live. And how does it describe the garden? It says that the garden was pleasant to the sight. It was beautiful. It was like a garden today. It was somewhere where you would want to be. It was productive and vivacious. It was good for food. It says that it was irrigated by the rivers that were nearby. Sometimes we get the idea that in this garden, Adam and Eve were just lying around in hammocks. Right? They just had it easy. They were just kicked back, living in the garden. But that's not very fulfilling, is it? The thing about just being leisurely without any work. It says, though, in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And so there was a purpose, a divine purpose to man to tend this garden, to keep up with it, to be a part of it, and to be a part of the process of it. There was a purpose and a vocation. A life without purpose isn't very fulfilled, is it? To think about being able to work in this. And of course, there was companionship in the garden. Adam found himself very alone. 
And it was not good for man to be alone. And God created woman from the very flesh and bone of man and instituted the divine institution of marriage. But the greatest revelations in Genesis 3 and of the Garden of Eden are really about human nature, aren't they? And the amazing thing about this passage that is old, it's really old, is that it still speaks truth into our existential dilemma today. That's the amazing thing about Genesis chapter 3. Because it deals with temptation. It deals with sin. And what you find in it is that even though it's 3,500 plus years old, that it's just as relevant today as it was then. Because it deals with what we are dealing with every day. Like the nature of temptation. In verse 1, it gives the temptation like this. The serpent comes to the woman, verse 1, and it says, Has God indeed said? If you stop right there, that is the root of all temptation. Has God indeed said? If you break that sentence down, you can do it in a lot of different ways. You can do it like this. Is there a God? If there is no God, there is no temptation, there is no sin, there is no moral anything. We're just opinionated, highly opinionated. But if there is a God, there is a wrong and right. If there is a wrong and a right, there is an absolute objective morality of where I can sin against you and you can sin against me and I can sin against the God of heaven. And the first question is, is there a God? Every house has a builder, and the builder of all things is God. Then we can break it down like this. Is there a God, or has He said anything? You see, a lot of people would have us believe that God hasn't said anything. There may be a God. There may be some blind force out there. But He hasn't revealed anything. He hasn't spoken. He hasn't told us anything. That's one way to look at it. But the Scriptures tell us that God has spoken. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and so on. So, hey, maybe there's not a God. Maybe God hasn't said anything. And then He gets down to number three. Well, are you sure He said it like that? If, God, if there is a God and if He has spoken, are you sure you got what He's saying right? And that's the temptation that Adam and Eve face. And we see deception, don't we? Look at the deception in Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. You, you find what you might want to call a bold-faced lie. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. That is in direct contradiction to what God told them in chapter 2. He said, If you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. So what the enemy does in our life is that he exchanges the truth for what? A lie. 
And the thing about the lie and temptation is, is that it is much more convenient. It is much more comfortable. And it's easy to fall prey to. We also see the characteristics of temptation in verse 6. Look at this. I know you all have been tempted. I don't know if you've all sinned or who will admit to it today. But we can all say that we've been tempted. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Romans, verse 6 says this. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. You see right there, you have a threefold temptation. It was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. And it would make her wise. In that you have what John says in 1 John 2.15 is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you follow temptation, don't they all fall into those three categories? Think about the sin that you know. Does it have something to do with an appetite? A desire? Because if it wasn't a desire, then you wouldn't be tempted, right? There has to be some sort of a desire. There's an appetite related to it. Was it good to the eyes? Does the devil make it look good? Yes. And is there a sense of pride that maybe comes from it? The nature of temptation we find. We also find that moral accountability is knowledge. Verse 7, the eyes of them were open after they ate of the fruit, and they knew. You see, moral accountability is connected with our knowledge of good and evil. And all of us are born with an innate sensibility as to what is wrong and right. All of us. In fact, Romans tells us that God has gifted us with a conscience, which means knowledge of what is wrong and right. But because of their sin, verse 8 says what they began to do. Look what happens. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Because of their sin... What did they do? They hid themselves. They separated themselves. They willfully separated themselves from the presence of God. And then they do what none of us do ever. They started blaming each other. Anybody do that? Thank you for being honest. Verse 12, the blame game. Then the man said, the woman... Whom you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman. What is this that you have done? And the woman said. The serpent deceived me. And see you see this passing of the buck. Of responsibility that happens. The blame game. Not taking responsibility. For the actions. And because of this. There are consequences to the sin. The sinfulness leads to death. To the thorns and the thistles, to pain, for dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. And it ends in this way, but it also begins with the promise that through woman, through the seed of woman, a Savior would be born. Which leads us to the second garden. 
the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14. So while the Garden of Eden represents humanity's disobedience in a perfected state, because they had everything that they needed, they lived in the presence of God, Gethsemane represents obedience in an imperfect state. It is the divine reversal of humanity's brokenness. Gethsemane is an interesting word. It means olive press. And so in this garden, this orchard of olive trees, they would make olive oil. And there was a press there that would crush the olives. And of course, Jesus is, this is on his night of betrayal. And he brings his disciples and then he brings his closest disciples a little further in. And in that garden, he finds no consolation with his companions. Whereas in the Garden of Eden, God supplies a companion for man. And here Jesus faces this aloneness by himself. He faces the distress by himself. There's no one to comfort him in the garden. And he tells his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Three times. And every time he comes back to his disciples and what are they doing? They're sleeping. And we see Jesus' humanity in full view. He says in Mark chapter 13, 34, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Jesus knows what's before Him. He knows that He is going to be betrayed. He knows He's going to be turned over into Pilate's hands. And in fact, it describes His anguish as sweat becoming as great drops of blood falling to the ground. But we also find a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus addresses the Father as Abba. What was Adam and Eve doing in their garden? They were hiding from God. They were running from the presence of God in their shame and in their guilt. But here Christ in His anguish and in His distress is bringing us closer to God. He's seeking God. He's reaching up to God. He's calling God Abba, which is this word of intimacy in the word of Aramaic. Much like our word Daddy. Begging for His Father's help and praying, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but what you will. You see Christ's total surrender and obedience to the Lord. And of course, He describes this as being a battle. He says that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Only to be betrayed, not by some serpent, but by a friend, by a close disciple, who came up to Him and kissed Him. Think about the emptiness of that gesture. Think about the hypocrisy of that affection. Something that was supposed to mean I love you was distorted and turned into betrayal. And it says that Jesus readily admitted who He was in the garden in the darkness. They came with torches And he says, I am he, and they fell to the ground. 
And he said, was I not daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not take me? You come by night when I was with you daily in the temple teaching. Why didn't you get me there? And of course, they try him by night and bring him to Pilate to be crucified. So think about the two trees. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and to make one wise. And then you have the tree of the cross, which is horrific, which is bitter, and which is brought on by ignorance and hate. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was crucified. If the story ended like that, we wouldn't be here. If the story simply ended with a man dying a gruesome, terrible convict's death, there would be no church. And that's why I chose John chapter 20 as the, as the scripture reading because it, it speaks of something else. Because the story didn't end with a death. It began with the resurrection of Jesus. And the first appearance of the resurrected Jesus was to Mary Magdalene. And this is the reversal of everything that has happened in history all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the beginning of the new creation. This is the beginning of something different. This is the beginning of hope. He came to Mary Magdalene and He said, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And it says that she did not recognize Him at first. You see, Jesus was gently coming to her. And she mistaked Him as what? as a gardener. And no, Jesus was not the gardener of that garden where the tomb was, but He is the master gardener. And because of His resurrection, there's not just the Garden of Eden. There's not just the Garden of Gethsemane. But because of Jesus' being raised from the dead, there is a garden of life. There is a garden of hope. And Revelations chapter 22 describes that garden and it says this, And He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on the side of the river, there was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, and the tree yielding its fruits every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there were to be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Did you hear those words? Pure. A pure river the throne of God, the tree of life, the healing of all nations in a place where we will see His face. Because of Christ's victory over death, there is a hope for this world and it's only in Jesus. 
And so today, all of us are planting our own gardens of eternity, aren't we? And for me, all I can say is is that I am going to seek the master gardener because I need help with my garden. I need help with it. And if you need help this morning to have that hope of that beautiful garden that He has prepared for us, think about obeying the Lord. It begins in faith. It begins in believing who He is, that He is the risen Jesus. That God has indeed exalted Him. And to repent of those things in which we have sinned. Confess Him to be the Son of God and to be baptized, immersed into His body. And He gives us strength to resist those temptations. Or today you're a Christian and you need hope, you need a reminder, or you need a prayer of healing. If you have any need, we want to invite you and we want to encourage you as we sing this next song. So if you have any need, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.